Crossroads family, would you stand and celebrate with us the reason we can have hope in these strange and trying times, as our hope is built on the one foundation that will never fail, God himself.
Grab a seat. Glad you're here with us this morning. For those of you I have not yet met, my name is Eric. I'm uh, the lead pastor here, and we're really, really grateful that you're here. And I know that for some of you, it was difficult to find a street that enabled you to get here because we got the marathon going on. I'm glad you made it, but I will say that you probably, you're, we've already been surpassed by Josh, who ran in the half marathon this morning, has already taken a shower, had breakfast, and still made it to church on time. So he's now run further than any of us will drive today, which, great, comparison is the thief of joy, right? We made it, we should feel proud of ourselves. A couple of things I want to let you know about that are coming up here. Uh, first off, ladies, we have a women's breakfast coming up. It's on the 13th, which I believe is next Saturday. So if you have two X chromosomes, we invite you to come across the street at 8.30 on Saturday morning, and you can have breakfast. I tr I'm going to try to sneak in there because I love, I know that there's going to be good breakfast, but I'm probably going to get kicked out. So, ladies... That is for you. The other thing I want to let you know about is if you have kids and you are currently raising children and you just go, man, I feel sometimes like I'm just making it up as I go and I'm feeling overwhelmed and I want to be more intentional about the way I train my children up and the way they go, I want to think through the kind of values that I'm imparting to my kids so that when they move out inevitably, please, Lord, when they move out they will actually have a foundation of character and faith to build upon. And if that's you, if I'm describing you, I'm describing myself, then I want to invite you to a seminar we are going to have. It's not a seminar, actually, because a seminar is something where you just listen to people talk. This is going to be where you get to grapple with the questions of how am I raising my children and what are the choices we want to make now so that later on, they will be the kind of men and women that God has created them to be. And if that's you, then th beginning this Friday, we have something called Legacy Makers. And this is all about helping you be more intentional about the way you raise your children. It begins this Friday um, in the family room. It's a two-night seminar. There will be child care available for those of you with littles. We're going to have dinner and it's just going to be a great time. And by the way, it's about $130, I think, for the two nights. But if that, is an, if that is a financial issue for you, we will cover the cost because we are all about investing in you. If you have questions about it or you want to get information, there's a QR code in your bulletin. Just take a picture of that, and that will take you right to the place to sign up. And again, if finance is an issue, we will cover it. Another thing is it's November. And so that doesn't just mean, John, that we're going to start growing our facial hair, though I'm with you. Um, it is also a time where we begin to look forward to things that we are thankful for. And yet we recognize there's a lot of people in our community that don't have nearly as much as we do. And so this is an opportunity to come alongside and love people in our neighborhood. So if you would like to provide a Thanksgiving meal for a family in need, we are partnering with Fresh Beginnings Ministries to provide, I believe, 1,300 meals this Thanksgiving, 1,300 Thanksgiving boxes. Uh, so if you're interested in participating in that, there's information on the back table when you're walking out. And then lastly, and this is just a teaser, we'll go in deeper in, in, the, next, in the coming weeks. For those of you for whom Thanksgiving is a little bit of a depressing time because it's a reminder that you don't have family near, or perhaps it's, it's not the kind of together time that you're, you used to experience or you would have expected to experience, we want to invite you to come and have Thanksgiving dinner with us. 
on Thursday of Thanksgiving in the family room. Again, that's where we're doing, that's just kind of where we're doing life together. So if you are interested in that, Rachel and Kilby are going to be heading that up. Rachel and Kilby, will you stand up for a second? I know, it makes you super uncomfortable, which is why I'm doing it. That's Rachel, not Kilby. Kilby is right next to her, refusing to stand up. I'm revoking that merit badge from you, Kilby, the obedience merit no. Rachel and Kilby are the people to go and talk to if you would like to either, if you're planning on coming, but more importantly, if you would like to provide something for that. If you want to cook a turkey at home and just drop it off, even if you have your own family dinner, you want to help out, you guys can help support that. So, we good? There's a, that's a lot I just went over. With that, we are going to be continuing our journey through John 20, or through the, the gospel of John, and we are, we are really, really close to being finished with it. Um... The last couple of weeks, we've been looking at the cross and its aftermath. And last week specific, we looked at the effect that it had on Jesus' disciples and really grappled with the question of how can we know that Jesus really rose from the dead? That's the question that our entire faith hinges on. You might have a ton of questions, but that is the most central question to our faith. Did Jesus actually rise from the dead? Because if he didn't, then our faith is empty, there is no power to the gospel message, and we might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's at least Paul's conclusion. But if he did rise from the dead, as the gospels suggest he did, then that radically impacts the way that we live our life, even if there's lots of other theological questions that we might have. And so last week we looked at that, but this week, God bless you, Dee. Um, this week, we are going to lean into the effect of the empty grave, or at least the testimony of some of the disciples for having seen Jesus on one person in particular, and that's this guy, Thomas. We didn't quite finish the Easter morning conversation, at least as John lays it out. There's one of Jesus' disciples that didn't have the opportunity to see Jesus with his own eyes on Easter morning. And it's really interesting to lean into his story. But here's the thing that I realized this week. We often read about people in Scripture, and it can sound like they're just two-dimensional characters from a story, right? It, it, they just, they're bit players in this really grand narrative. But at the end of the day, we forget sometimes that they were real human beings with real questions and real issues and if we just look at them as characters in a story, we miss the depth of it. So from time to time, when appropriate, I love to just try to, to, to put on our sanctified imaginations and slip into the sandals of one of the characters of these, uh, of these stories. And, and today I want to try to just walk a couple of steps in Thomas's sandals and, and experience perhaps what he might have experienced on that first Easter morning. And to do that... I have taken a little bit of creative liberty with, this, with Thomas's story on Easter, and I've written perhaps what it might have been like for him. And I will just say from the outset, I, this isn't 100% like this is exactly what happened for Thomas, but perhaps it is. So, would you, would you go on a little bit of an adventure with me? All right, so put on your sanctified imaginations, and let's try to walk a couple of steps in Thomas's shoes. The streets of Jerusalem seemed cold and inhospitable as Thomas walked back towards the upper room. His arms were full of provisions to feed everyone who was in hiding there. 
the sun was hidden behind a shroud of lead-gray clouds that made the whole city feel gloomy. Or maybe that was just Thomas. It was the third day since his rabbi's cold, lifeless body had been laid in a rich man's tomb, an empty vessel that had once contained the hopes of so many people, including himself. But those hopes had been spilled out into the dirt outside of Jerusalem and trampled upon by sneering Jewish leaders who should have recognized Jesus as their Messiah. Those same religious leaders were still out there. Thomas knew they were looking for him and for the rest of the disciples. That's why none of Jesus' followers had been willing to venture out into the streets until somebody needed to go out and get food and Thomas had volunteered. He'd taken an indirect path back to their hideout, praying that he wouldn't be recognized along the way. But in the busy streets of Jerusalem on this first day after the Sabbath, nobody paid him the slightest attention. He was just one more melancholy face in the crowd. As Thomas drew near to their hideout, he glanced behind him to make sure that he hadn't been followed. And then he climbed the stone staircase that led to the upper room. This was the same room that he'd last spoken with Jesus as they shared one final meal together. <laughs> Had that really been four days ago? It felt like an eternity. Thomas's mood darkened as he quietly knocked on the door in the secret rhythm that they had agreed upon. When he had finished knocking, the door was thrown wide open, recklessly wide in Thomas's opinion, and he hurried inside so that it could be bolted tightly against prying eyes and whispering tongues. As he began to set the groceries down, he noted that the room was brightly lit for the first time since Jesus had been arrested. He was about to comment on this when he glanced up and noticed that every eye in the room was trained on him. Well, that by itself wasn't such a big deal since, I mean, he was the first one to venture out, but it was the look with which they were looking at him that really caused him to pause because gone was the dejection that he had seen on their faces no more than an hour before. Their glum expressions had been replaced by something that almost seemed like glee. What was he missing? Thomas was about to ask what was going on when one of the disciples blurted out, Thomas, he's alive! With a huge grin on his face. Thomas just stared at the grinning man, trying to make sense of what he had heard. What? Who's alive? He asked with genuine confusion. Jesus! He's alive! He was here eating with us! You just missed him! A spark of hope flared in Thomas's heart for just a moment. But then his rational mind got its act together and it doused it with a cold bucket of logic. Jesus had bled out on a Roman cross. He had seen the lifeless body with his own eyes. <laughs> this had to be some sort of a prank and it was a really inappropriate one in Thomas's opinion. The other disciples saw the look of doubt upon his face and they began to voice their support for this outlandish claim. No, seriously, he's alive. We've seen him. Yeah, he was just here. We ate dinner with him. It was really him, Thomas. Jesus is alive. Thomas watched their faces for a sign that they were pulling his leg. The whole while, there was an internal war being waged between his head and his heart. In his head, he knew it couldn't possibly be true, but his heart held on to their words like a drowning man gripping a piece of wood. 
He longed for it to be true, longed to celebrate with them. But he feared opening himself up to this perilous hope because if he discovered it wasn't true, well, his heart would break all over again. And so, when Thomas finally regained the ability to string words together coherently, he uttered the only thought that made any sense. Guys, I know that you're saying that you've seen Jesus, but until I see him with my own eyes, until I'm able to touch his wounds, I just can't believe. I wonder how you might have felt if you were in Thomas's shoes on that day. I wonder how you might have responded if you walked into that upper room and heard the claim that Jesus was alive. I can't speak for you, but I can speak for myself. I can totally understand Thomas's response. I mean, he wasn't asking for anything more than the disciples had already gotten themselves, right? And so I would, I would be surprised if, they, if we didn't at least feel some hesitation to just embrace it altogether. And yet, because of Thomas's response, he has gotten the very uh, discouraging, kind of disparaging name of Doubting Thomas. You guys have heard him refer to this, Doubting Thomas. That's how he's come to be known throughout history, is Doubting Thomas, because Thomas doubted that Jesus was alive. And we, this isn't a name that Jesus gave him, mind you. This is a name that we, readers of Scripture, have given him. We have labeled him Doubting Thomas, and we haven't thought a second thought about it. Because what's, what, what's the big deal? It's just a way of remembering this interaction. And yet I would suggest to you that labeling him as Doubting Thomas actually does a huge amount of disservice to him, but more importantly to us. And to anybody else who hears that name, because when we start labeling him Doubting Thomas in a disparaging way, this is what it communicates to us. It is not okay to ever question your faith. If you have a question and you voice your question, you are doubting. And if you are doubting, then you lack faith. And if you lack faith, then you're not a real, true believer. And I would imagine that some of you have gotten that impression. Certainly, there's a lot of people who have. And so what do we do? We stuff our questions down. We force them to the back of our mind. We, for those of us who, who, who do want to put our faith in Jesus Christ, we kind of slap a smile over our faces and kind of move forward in spite of the questions that are there. And we might... We might make the excuse of why we don't voice our questions as it's somehow trying to protect God as if we could protect God, right? Well, I don't want to dishonor God by voicing questions about my faith as if he was such a fragile deity that we could somehow dishonor him or hurt his feelings or even hide our thoughts from him. I mean, he knows what we're thinking. He knows it before we ever voice it. So we're not doing him any favors by stifling those questions. I would suggest that perhaps a deeper reason why we choose not to voice our questions is because we're doing it in some part to protect ourselves. 
either to protect ourselves from public perception, because we should probably already know the answers to these questions, or we think that maybe we're the only one who's thinking it and everybody else gets it, and so we don't want to look stupid. But perhaps even deeper than that is a fear that we wouldn't even voice to ourselves, but a fear that if we voice those questions, then we might not find adequate answers to those questions that are, and that our faith will ultimately not stand up to the scrutiny of our questions. And so instead, we stuff them down, we shove them to the back of our mind, and we distract ourselves with busyness, and we try to convince ourselves that we don't have questions at all. And then, because we don't know if, if our faith can kind of withstand the scrutiny of those hard questions, rather than kind of putting the weight of our hope in Him, we tend to then put the hope of our faith on our circumstances. I, I, I know I'm not talking about any of you, but just hypothetically, sometimes this happens. That because we don't know if God is really strong enough to kind of withhold or, or, or hold us up, we look to our circumstances to determine our confidence. But then what happens when our world is shaken? What happens when we get that diagnosed from the doctor? Yep, it's cancer. What happens when our spouse <laughs> says, I, I can't do this anymore? What happens when we don't get the promotion that we thought we deserved, somebody else gets it? What happens when our life does not go as scheduled or as we would expect? What happens then? When we put our faith, when we try to lean our faith against a foundation that is made of sand, what happens when our faith inevitably crumbles around us? What then? And guys, I'm not talking hypothetically here because I'm describing for you what a season of my life that I walked through in my 20s. Back when I was 23, um, I had grown up in the church. I, I, I accepted Jesus as my Lord and Savior when I was very young, even though I didn't really fully understand what that looked like or what that meant. It was much more of a religion than a relationship. It took moving out of my parents' house and going to college and kind of grappling with my own faith for my religion to give way to a relationship. But I remember vividly the day that my faith crumbled it happened in the month of September of 2001. And there were three things in particular that happened, three deep tremors that ultimately brought my faith crumbling down. The first one was 9-11. When, when those planes flew into the, the Trade Center Towers and they crumbled, my sense of security, our kind of communal sense of security was shaken to its core. That same month, the lead pastor at the church where I was attending got up in front of the congregation and admitted to having an extramarital affair and that he was stepping down from his position so that he could kind of work on his marriage. And our church community was shaken to its core. And that same month, as I was beginning uh, my master's in theology at Vanguard down the street, that same month I was in my very first theology class. And the professor was talking about how 
at some point, the early church in one of their conversations coined the term Trinity to describe a God who is three in one. And what he didn't realize is that I'd never considered where that term came from. I'd always just assumed that the word Trinity was in the Bible, that that's where we get that from. And so again, my faith was shaken. Because what it did is it exposed a whole bunch of other assumptions that I had never considered. Assumptions like where the Bible came from. Up to this point, or up to that point at least, 20 years ago, I just figured that the Bible had fallen out of heaven one day, in English, bound in, in fake leather, with Jesus' words highlighted in red. Like, I just figured, I never thought about where the Bible came from. I never thought about the journey it's been on or the fact that every time I read it in English, it is a translation of Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic and the, the fingerprints that have been left on it. I never thought about any of these things. And I, my faith in Jesus was resting upon a house of cards that were all of the assumptions that I had simply gleaned over the course of my lifetime of growing up in the church, of growing up in a Christian family of growing up surrounded by friends who also went to church and had a, a stronger faith than even I did. I had just, I, I, I assumed things that my parents or my pastors or my friends told me. And on that particular night, for whatever reason, it was the, the topic of the Trinity that was ultimately the sledgehammer blow that toppled that house of cards. And I found my own faith lying in the rubble of my questions. So many questions, questions that I had just been ignoring for so long that it was overwhelming. And in that moment, I had a decision to make. I had a lot of questions, I had a lot of doubt, and because I doubt, do I just wash my hands of all of it and walk away and go and live my life as the captain of my own ship? Or... Do I wade into the rubble? Do I wade into the questions and begin to pick them up one by one and dust them off and actually honestly grapple with them for the first time in my life? That was the crossroads that I was at. And I will tell you that that conversation, that falling was far more impactful to me than even the falling of the Twin Towers. Because the Twin Towers shook my sense of security but the questions that I'd been shoving to the back of my mind, that shook the foundation of my spiritual worldview. But I decided to lean in to the rubble and to begin to, to grapple with my own questions, to grapple with my faith, to see if my faith could stand the scrutiny of my hardest questions. And I, and I did so with a whole heck of a lot of prayer. God, I... I don't know if you're up there, but if you are, uh, with, with a lot of time spent kind of checking out Scripture to see what it actually said rather than just listening to what my pastor said it said, and with a whole lot of leaning into to some trusted people that were further along in their journey or simply would give me the space to grapple with my questions without making me feel stupid or less than. I, I began a very long journey of grappling. And I, will stay, I, I, I can tell you today that I am who I am. And I am the leader that I am. I, 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 I'm, I'm a, the pastor that I am because of that journey. 
from a personal standpoint, I can tell you that leaning in was the most, one of the most impactful, pivotal moments of my life, which is why when there are people in our community who voice questions, they may even be very, uh, we've got a couple of people in my life group currently who are always like prefacing their questions with, I'm really sorry, this is probably a stupid question. And then they ask the question and everybody in the group is like, thank you for voicing that. That's such a great question. And then everybody looks at me like, what's the answer? And then my wife kicks me because she's like, don't answer it for everybody. Let's let the conversation go, which is really important. And for any of you whose wife kicks you under the table, rather than looking at that as them not loving you or not caring what you have to say, thank you, spouses, who keep us honest. Because here's what I've learned. There is more power in the discovery than in the telling. So sometimes the most loving thing that I can do is not just, oh, you got a question? Here's my answer. Sounds a little bit like a vanilla ice remix. Uh, if you got a question, yo, I'll answer it. No, no, sorry, not going to do it. <laughs> sorry, tragically white, my bad. So, such a detour there, sorry about that. Total squirrel, shiny object moment. Um, what I've learned, and this, a mentor used to say, hey, there's more power in the discovery than in the telling. And so when people have questions, I don't give them a hard time about it. In fact, I get excited when people ask hard questions because what it tells me is that this individual is actually taking their faith seriously. They're grappling with it. They're trying to figure out, can I know this is true? And at the end of the day, when they are able to grapple with it, what you're left with is something so much stronger than just somebody else's opinion that you take it as an assumption. The house of cards is by its very nature susceptible to being knocked over. You pull one card out, the whole thing topples. And there are some of you in this room whose entire faith is teetering on a house of cards because you're borrowing somebody else's faith. And as much as this might be a scary thing, I hope you come to a point where you are willing to ask your hard questions. I hope you get there quickly because I can tell you from experience that grappling through your hard questions, one, Jesus can stand up to the scrutiny of our hard questions. The Bible can stand up to the scrutiny of our hardest questions. And I pray that you will do so in community with others who can give you permission to be in process. Because when you take the time to ask those questions and you grapple to find your own answers, then they become your answers. And that foundation is so much more stable and sturdy than just assumptions. And so that's why when my sons ask me questions, I smile. They don't ask me a lot because they don't, they're tired of hearing their dad talk. But I don't want you to just take my word for it. In fact, I would suggest to you that Scripture is very clear that it is okay to have questions and still hold on to our faith. If you have a Bible, we're going to start by turning to Acts chapter 17. It's one book after John. So if you're used to going to John, just go to the right just a little bit. It goes Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts. If you hit Romans, you've gone too far. Revelation, yeah, take a hard left. You've got a ways to go. 
In, in the book of Acts, we see the early church, after they have experienced persecution, which really in a lot of ways is like God blowing on the dandelion and scattering the seeds out into Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We see them beginning to go into these places because persecution pushes them there. But when they're there, they, they begin to share their faith. And some people mock them for it. Some of the disciples were beaten and stoned and, and kicked out because of it. But there are others who, who were curious. Some people gave their hearts to Jesus right away. But I love the description of the men and women in the city of Berea, because I think we are encouraged to to act like them. So in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we read, now the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica. Why? For they received the message, the gospel, with great eagerness, and they examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. I'm going to read that one more time, so keep that up on the screen. Now, the Berean Jews were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, and this is the reason. Because on the one hand, they received the message with great eagerness. They actually listened. They were teachable. There's so many people in our culture right now who are so unteachable. We already think we know everything, so we don't bother to listen to anybody who has something different to share. But they didn't just blindly accept it and and move on. They then examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. They embraced the message, and they explored, they went back through their Hebrew scriptures, what we would call the Old Testament. Those are the only scriptures they had. And they began to go, what did the prophets say about the Messiah? If they're claiming that this Jesus is the Messiah, did it really say that he would have to suffer and die for us? Yeah, check out Isaiah 53. Check out Psalm 22. Did it really say that his bones wouldn't be broken? Yeah, check out the Passover lamb. Remember how its bones are never able to be broken? And Jesus, you know, all of that. They they studied the scriptures to see if what the gospel message was saying was true. And because of that posture, because they are both open to hearing it, but also willing to grapple with it and explore it, to see, just not taking it on blind faith, because of that, they are said to be of noble character. So is it okay for us to have questions in the midst of having faith? Yes! Yes, it is. In fact, if you would suggest that you have no questions, I'd be the first one to say, I doubt that. I got questions, and that's okay. I'll probably have questions until the day I go to be with Jesus. I bet Merv, Merv, would you say, do you have questions still, bud? Yeah, he does. He's, he's nodding back there. He's like, when are you going to be done? <laughs> Got to go to the bathroom. I'm sorry. I take that back. All right. Squirrel. Let's go back to John 20, shall we? Go ahead and turn with me to John 20. <laughs> uh, who let the child on the stage? John 20. We are going to go back to the story of Thomas, back to the guy that we have labeled Doubting Thomas, and we're going to go ahead and look at the way that Jesus responds to Thomas and the way that Thomas responds to Jesus. Verse 24, now Thomas, and this, is, this part that we're reading is, is what happened that first Easter Sunday. Thomas, also known as Didymus, 
one of the 12 disciples was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and I put my finger where the nails were, and if I put my hand into his side, unless I do that, I will not believe. Hence, we have labeled him Doubting Thomas, even though what he was asking for was the very thing that all the other disciples in the room got. Even though Peter and John saw the empty tomb and still didn't understand that Jesus had risen from the dead at that point until they saw Jesus with their own eyes. Even then, we call him Doubting Thomas. Now a week goes by. It's now next Sunday. And there's a reason, by the way, that we meet on Sundays as opposed to doing church on Saturdays because their relationship with Jesus, that kind of resurrected interactions took place on Sundays. And so that became a holy day for them and for us. So a week later, his disciples were in the house again and Thomas was with them this time. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood amongst them and said, Peace be with you. Shalom. Then he looked at Thomas and he said, Put your fingers here. See my hands? Reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. You know what Jesus doesn't do? He doesn't reprimand Thomas for having that question. He doesn't reprimand Thomas for voicing his question. He gives Thomas exactly what he was asking for. You wanted to see my scars? Here they are. You wanted to put your finger into the wound on my side? Go for it. Thomas, you don't have to doubt any longer. Believe, because I'm here. I would suggest to you that one of the reasons why we, we sometimes don't have our questions answered is because we're unwilling to voice our questions. You have not because you ask not. For whatever reasons, we hold them back. The first step in getting our questions answered is actually voicing them. Thomas did. Jesus gave him exactly what he needed. Look at Thomas's response in verse 28. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. In that moment, I, we don't even read that Thomas had to actually touch his wounds. Just seeing Jesus with his own eyes is enough. And in that moment, everything changes for him. His, his faith is resurrected. And he looks at Jesus with new eyes and he says, my Lord, which is what all of the other disciples have called him, but he goes a step further and he calls him my God, which he's the only one of the disciples at this point who has referred to Jesus in that way. His entire perception has changed in a heartbeat. Jesus goes on. Then Jesus told him, because you have seen me, you've believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. And guys, Jesus is talking about us. Because unlike Thomas and unlike the other disciples, Jesus has ascended into heaven. We don't have the opportunity to, to have him walking in the midst of us, kind of sporting his nail holes and, and, and pulling up his shirt so we can see the wound. And every generation of believers, including the ones that John was writing his gospel for, every generation of believers after them has had to take their word for it. 
And if, the, if Jesus' own disciples had doubts, if they struggled, it's understandable that we would struggle, that we would have questions. There's a reason why we spent an entire week last week grappling with the question, does my faith in the empty tomb have to rest on blind faith alone? Is there evidence for it? The reason we did that is because of how central that question is to the entire thing. But it's understandable that we would have questions. And Jesus looks beyond Thomas and beyond the other disciples and says, blessed are those who believe even though they don't see, even though they haven't seen me with their own eyes. Ultimately, what he's saying is that our relationship with him is built upon a foundation of faith. The writer of Hebrews defines what faith is. Can we throw that up there? He says, faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance about what we do not see. The reason that we have... Thomas didn't have to take on faith that Jesus was alive because Thomas saw Jesus with his own eyes. The rest of the disciples didn't need to take it on faith that Jesus was alive because they saw him with their own eyes. In fact, as we saw in, in 1 Corinthians 15... Paul points to over 500 men and women who saw Jesus with their own eyes. And he says, if you don't believe me, go talk to them because most of them are still alive. Don't take my word for it. And as we talked about last week, one of the, the greatest evidences for the empty tomb is the transformed lives of those men and women who claim to have seen Jesus with their own eyes but we don't have that same opportunity. So admittedly, our journey with Jesus is founded upon faith. Do I believe that what they say in here is true? Do I believe that what my parents tell me is true? Do I believe what my pastor is currently telling me is true? It begins with faith. I often use this analogy. I'm going to use it again because it's the best one I got. Faith is more than simply intellectual assent. Faith is more than just, I believe that Jesus rose from the dead. I believe that he was the son of God. And I believe that he did what needed to be done to restore me back into relationship with God and to restore the purpose for which I was created. That's the gospel message. I believe that. But faith is more than just an intellectual statement because words are cheap. I could say that I believe that this chair can hold me up, right? I believe it with all of my being. Okay, Eric, then sit down in it. No, I'm good. I like standing. If I refuse to sit down in it, then you would have every reason to question whether or not I really believed it or if I was just paying lip service to it. The moment that you know and I know that I believe this will hold me up is the moment that I put my weight down in it and sit down. Genuine faith leads to action every time. You don't believe me? Read James. He talks about it. Genuine faith leads to action. When I sit down, now I know. It's no longer, I think this chair will hold me up. Stop moving. I know this chair will hold me up. My faith changes. It goes from being blind faith to now founded upon 
evidence. And that evidence is I sat down in it and it's holding me up. In the same way, you can claim I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that God loves me and wants relationship with me. I believe he's invited me to walk with him and be shaped by my proximity to him. We call that being discipled by Jesus. I believe that. But when we actually start doing it, our blind faith gives way to a more mature faith because we begin to see that who Jesus claimed to be and what he claimed to be able to do is true. Jesus put it this way in John 8. If you do what I say, you'll know the truth and the truth will set you free. If you do what I say, if you rest in me, if you actually take steps to follow me, then you will know the truth. And that truth will ultimately lead you to freedom. 20 years ago, when my faith crumbled in front of me, probably the scariest moment of my adult life, 20 years ago, I had to take some steps in blind faith. I had to choose to sit back down in the metaphorical chair that is Jesus Christ and let him hold me even though I had a, a plethora of questions. But 20 years later, I don't have a blind faith any longer because I have 20 years of evidence, not just evidence from here, although I have a ton from here. I have 20 years of evidence from my own life. I have 20 years of walking with Jesus and watching as he has steered my path, as he has closed doors that I was certain I should walk through, and opened doors that I would have never chosen. And it's only in hindsight as I look back on it, I go, man, he's good. He knew what I needed, not just what I wanted. And I would quote a country song right now if I liked country music, but I'm sometimes really grateful for unanswered prayers, right? Really grateful. I, I've watched him walk my family through some really painful moments like two miscarriages, like our second born being born 11 weeks prematurely and having to spend two months driving back and forth to the hospital wondering, are we ever going to bring him home? And if we do bring him home, will he, does he have bleeding on the brain? And is he ever going to be normal? but he's a Wayman, so of course he's never going to be normal. <laughs> he's as normal as a Wayman can get. Let's just put it that way. We've watched as God has provided, sometimes in ridiculously miraculous ways that Kat and I can't explain, and that's not just because I'm a bad budgeter. It's because there are times when, honestly, we look at what's coming in and what needs to go out. Living in Orange County is hard, and you go, I don't know how you're doing it, but he has provided kind of like the Israelites walking through the wilderness on manna. It's always enough, often just enough, and our faith grows exponentially. And it's not just my own journey, and there's a ton of more examples I can give you, but it's watching. I have the, the, the unique privilege of getting to enter into the messiness of people's lives. Mike Jones laughs. He goes, Eric, you, you and Kathy are like porta-potties. People come and just dump their stuff on you, and then they go, and I go, yeah, and we kind of love it, actually. It's weird, but we love getting access into people when they're not at their best. It, it's, it's kind of what we were designed to do. Jeff's the same way. We, we find it as an honor 
to get to enter into your messiness. And in the midst of meeting people in their messiness, we have seen miracles happen over and over and over. I've watched as God has done miraculous things. We watched as we prayed over Bill one, one week here in church. And a hole that had been open in his side for months miraculously closed over the course of that week. We can't explain it other than God did it, even as doctors couldn't explain it. I've watched as that's just one of many prayers we have seen answered. I've watched as God has restored marriages that should not, could, could not have been restored apart from God's grace. I've watched as he's broken addictions off of people and given them a new lease on life. I've watched as he's walked families people who were on the precipice of death and brought them back from that. But I've also watched as he has walked families through the loss of a loved one and breathed hope into them when it could otherwise have just been overwhelmingly tragic. Time and time and time again, I have seen the faithfulness of God as I have followed him. And sometimes I've followed him, sometimes we have followed him through some dark valleys and it felt overwhelming, and he's led us through, and he's never left our side, even though sometimes we turn away from him because we get fixated on the wind and the waves of our circumstances. But whenever we stop and we turn back around, there he is, faithfully there. He doesn't abandon us. He doesn't give up on us, even when we are idiots. Maybe that's just me. Thank God for that. And so, the point of this morning, I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. The point of this morning is simply to give you permission to ask your questions and to grapple with your questions. Because far from it being a declaration of a lack of faith, I would say just the opposite. In asking your questions, you are showing that you trust God to be big enough to handle your questions. The same way that when you feel overwhelming emotion, even anger towards God because of perhaps something that's going on in your life or the loss of a loved one, I love going back to the Psalms and reminding myself, these are prayers of God's people. These are recorded in Scripture as a reminder that it's okay to feel. It's okay to ask, God, where the heck are you? And rather than people being, you know, kind of slapped divinely by God for doing that, he actually lifts it up as this is an act of faith, trusting our emotions, trusting our questions, allowing ourselves to lean into the messiness of it and trusting that he will meet us even there. And so this morning, how do we respond? Well, there are some of you in here that I would imagine have been calling yourself a Christ follower for a very long time. So long, in fact, that you've gotten to the point where you feel like it's inappropriate for you to have hard questions. And so you've just stopped admitting that you do. Or you have stopped voicing them because you don't want people to think you have them. And I apologize for the way that we as a culture may have engendered that kind of posture because when we treat somebody differently because they've got questions. It doesn't just make them not have questions. It actually just makes them better at hiding their questions. We have been trained to hide our questions. And my 
my promise to you is that Lighthouse is a, safe, a place that is safe for you to grapple with your questions. Our life groups, the places where we do life together during the week, where it's not just one person standing up doing the talking, but it's all of us kind of processing together. Those life groups are safe places to be in process. And so if you have questions this morning, perhaps the most honoring and faith-filled thing you can do is to voice them. Whether that be just in prayer to God or let us know because we would love to, to walk with you as you grapple with them. There's some connection cards in the seat backs in front of you. Perhaps your response this morning is to grab a connection card and to write out your question. And if you're at home and you're watching, you can just email it to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. We want to know your questions even if you're not here in person with us. Bring it down just a little bit. Bring it down just a little bit. Sorry, that's not you. You can do, keep doing that. So if you got questions this morning, maybe as an act of worship, you write that out and you drop it in the, the offering buckets. Perhaps if you're a visitor, maybe that's your only offering this morning. Your get out of tithing free is write down your questions and drop them in the bucket. But I would also imagine that there might be some of you in here this morning that would not call yourself a follower of Jesus Christ. Maybe it's because you are willing to admit that you got a bunch of questions and you're just waiting until all of your questions are answered before you're willing to put your weight down in faith in Jesus. But if you're waiting to get all of your questions answered, then I can tell you, assure you, you will never get to the point where all of your questions are answered. Not this side of the grave, at least. And the invitation this morning is rather than waiting until all of your questions are answered, rather than asking a whole bunch of engineers, will this hold me up before I'm willing? The invitation is put your faith in me, rest in me. Oh, if you obey me, then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. It begins with a baby step into faith. It begins with, Jesus, <laughs> I got a whole heck of a lot of questions. but I'm going to choose to follow you. And I pray that you would reveal yourself to me. I pray that you would meet me where I'm at. Meet me in the messiness of my circumstances. And show me how to proceed. I will be the first to tell you that that baby step leads to a greater intimacy You want, you want answers. It begins by taking that first step of following him as he begins to reveal himself. In the same way that kind of like when you're, when you're dating, you don't just say, I'm going to, to study this person, every little bit of this person, and know everything about this person before I get, go on a date with this person. Now, sometimes you just need to spend some time with that person, and that's how you get to know them. Would you be willing to put your faith in Jesus, even if you don't have all your questions answered. And he will, I, I know that he is strong enough to meet you right there in the midst of it. We're going to go into a time of response right now. And you can respond in a lot of different ways. You might just want to have a conversation with Jesus right there. Maybe your response is you, you begin to list out the myriad questions. If you need a second 
a connection card to fill that out, great. If you want to think about it for a while and email them in, great. Perhaps you want some prayer. We would love the opportunity as elders to pray with you. So I'm going to ask our elder couples to head to the back. They'll be there if, if there's something you're carrying right now. You just need to share the load a little bit. Or maybe you just maybe the, the songs we're about to sing resonate with your heart. If, if so, then I encourage you to sing them. But I'm so grateful that we serve a God who's big enough to handle our full range of emotions and big enough to handle our deepest questions. You're not an unfaithful person if you've got them. You're a human being. We've all got questions. Thankfully, we've got a God who loves to meet us in the midst of it. So Jesus, we thank you. We thank you for the way you treated Thomas. We thank you for the reminder that it's okay to voice our questions. It's okay to have our questions. It's okay to be in process. I thank you, Father, that while faith might start blind, it doesn't stay there. And I pray, Father, for the courage for my brothers and my sisters and even for myself to continue to ask them so the foundation of our faith continues to grow. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.
sing now. This is my surrender. This is my surrender. Here is where I lay it down. You are all I'm chasing now. This is my surrender. This is my surrender. This is my thinking about the words that we just sang. Sometimes it's easy to, to get lost in a song and not think about what we're singing. Just think about these words that we just sang. Shake up the ground of all my traditions. Break down the walls of all my religion. Guys, if all we do in this time together is learn more intellectually about Jesus, then I am doing you a disservice. We are doing you a disservice. Our desire as a church community is that we are a people who are growing more intimately familiar with the person, not just the idea of a risen Savior. Jesus didn't just die to give you more rules so that you could feel superior over other people who don't keep the rules. Jesus gave his life to restore us back into relationship with the Father. And so if there is one prayer that I have for you and for my son and for myself is that we would be growing ever more intimately familiar with our Savior and our Lord Jesus. That it is a relationship. What you are invited to is a relationship with Jesus. Not just a list of rules to help you be like Jesus. And so let me just pray that over us right now. Father God, I am grateful that you never give up on us. Even when we disobey, even when we act contrary to your heart, even when the things that we think we do in honor of you, it's actually dishonoring of you. You don't give up on us. And I'm so grateful that you meet us in the midst of our questions, that you don't beat us up over it. God, I pray that you would give us the courage to trust you enough to be real and authentic with you. God, even in our prayers, prayers aren't a time to be good. They're a time to be honest. May our prayers be honest times. You already know our hearts. You know the stuff we struggle with. You know the kind of things we, the, the pigsties we keep wandering back towards. And you love us so much in the midst of it. Would you meet us in the midst of this week? Would you meet us in the midst of our conversations? Would you begin, continue, would you continue to shape us into a reflection of your image? But we pray you would do that through your intimacy, not just through more information. Jesus, we pray this in your holy name. Amen. Guys, I love getting to do life with you. I hope I'll see many of you on Wednesdays. Every Wednesday, 6 p.m. to 7 p.m., we have dinner across the street in the family room. Regardless of whether you're part of a life group and you have other plans that night, come. If you're hungry, bring your kids, bring your family, bring your neighbors. If you are raising children and you want some help in thinking through your intentionality, please sign up. 
to join us in, in this Legacy Makers thing. Ladies, I, I know that my wife is looking forward to seeing many of you guys along with a lot of the other gals next Saturday. We love you and we are grateful to be on this journey with you. Have a wonderful week. Now go be the church.